0: This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. That can be found on page 810 of the Bibles by your pews. Again, Matthew 5, 33 through 48, on page 810. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect.
1: Good morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We believe that your word is living and active. That your word brings life. That it confronts us and convicts us and comforts us and brings us into line with reality. Lord, so this morning we receive your word. We ask that you would give a spirit of revelation upon your word as we open it together. Would you meet us by your spirit this morning that you would conform us more into the image of your son? God, would you give us grace and sustain us? We ask in Jesus' great name, Amen. All right, so we're going to finish our time in Matthew 5 uh, this morning looking at the final three statements that Jesus makes related to temptations that come against the human heart and how we are to actively resist them. So to situate us, let us just review uh, where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. As we say week in and week out, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting his disciples to greater, uh, a greater experience of the blessed life or the whole life, the full life, one that's satisfied in his presence. This is centered around the eight Beatitudes, which are the value system of the kingdom of heaven. And the presence of these in our lives is the mark of our discipleship before him and the measure of our true and lasting greatness what we've seen as the section we've been in in Matthew 5, 21 to 48, what Jesus is doing here is highlighting six particular areas of temptation or sin that beset the human heart and how he's inviting his disciples to act in opposite ways to pursue conformity to his truth. His call for us is to be perfect or whole as the Father in heaven and embody an internal righteousness that surpasses the outward righteousness that had become the norm of the day taught by the scribes and Pharisees. These six commandments are uh, intended, we've talked about again and again, week after week, they're intended to do two things for us. Number one, they are intended to put front and center the severity of sin in the human heart. Sin is not neutral. It isn't uh, something we can just coddle and hope to presume on the grace of God later. What Jesus is doing here like a master physician is coming to us and saying, hey, these six Realities are like cancers that grow within the human heart. And if you do not resist them by my grace, they will grow and grow and grow and bring destruction and bring um, uh, harm to you and to others. So Jesus is lovingly like a good physician giving us the real diagnosis of our hearts. But on the other hand, what these are intended to do is actually maximize your joy. You see, the commandments of God are not some stingy boundary that he draws around your life because he doesn't want you to have fun. Jesus is concerned with your true, lasting, ultimate joy and fullness and because of that, he knows how humans work. He knows what is for our good. And so his boundaries are meant to be this beautiful place in which our lives and our joy can actually come to fruition and fullness. So if we miss those realities, that Jesus is, again, highlighting the severity of sin and Jesus is seeking to maximize our joy, if we miss those Two realities, we will miss the point of what's going on in the, in these six invitations. So this morning, we're going to cover the final three. We're going to just briefly look at them and uh, in, see what Jesus is inviting us to in them. First, the temptation to not keep our word or a temptation to break our commitments. The second thing we'll look at is the temptation to retaliate with vengeance when dishonored or wronged, and finally, the temptation to excuse or harbor hatred in our hearts. So let's dive in. Oaths and making false commitments. Look at letter A here. The fourth temptation that Jesus brings to us in this section has to do with our propensity to not keep our word or our agreements. In this statement, Jesus does something a little different than he's done before. He's not quoting a specific law or a specific commandment from the Old Testament. What he's doing is giving a summary statement that his hearers would have understood. There were several places in the Old Testament where his, uh, the, the children of Israel were invited to participate in oaths in a specific way as they sought to uh, solemnize or uh, whatever the word is there, solemnize. uh, their, their commitment before God. In Jesus's time, the Pharisees had misapplied the meaning of these, the third commandment specifically, of not taking the Lord's name in vain. In its context, this commandment was a prohibition against swearing a false oath or making an oath in God's name and then not following through on it. The commandment, the third commandment, this is just uh, a side note for you all. The third commandment is not primarily about not saying God's name like as a swear word. We oftentimes think it, that, that it's about profaning God's name or using God's name out of context or things like that, which you shouldn't do, but that's not what the commandments is about. The commandment, as you see throughout other places in the Old Testament, this commandment was about taking up the Lord's name uh, as a witness to something you were saying, and then breaking that. To take the Lord's name in vain would be to say, I promise to God I will do something, and then you break your commitment. That's what God's getting at here in the third commandment. But they had, just like we often do, removed what the true meaning was and begun to think of something different. So the Pharisees, letter C, seemed to have shifted the emphasis away from the vow itself and the need to follow through on it, to the formula for making the vow. So to them, in this sense, to swear falsely meant that, that they could not profane God's name, meaning they, they wouldn't take up God's name on their tongue in a, in a common way, but not that they wouldn't perjure God's name by taking a false oath. Rather than standing as a commandment against breaking our oaths, they believed that only oaths made in the Lord's name were binding. This is what we see later in Matthew 23 when Jesus is pronouncing woe against the Pharisees. They had come up with this pretty elaborate system by which if you made an oath by one thing but not the other thing, you weren't actually bound by it. It's kind of this like uh, religious way, this big game of like crossing your fingers, so to speak, right? Like that's the best way I could think of it is like, man, if I make the oath by the altar, it's... Okay, but if I make an oath by the gold on the altar, I'm bound to it. So if I go, no, 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 I'm gonna do it. I, I swear by the altar, you got this big old fingers crossed behind your back, right? I don't have to follow through on it. And they had come up with this elaborate way of coming through looking righteous and looking holy by making oaths in certain ways with these formulas, but not follow through, following through on them. So Jesus's intent here is to show that his disciples, the point of not swearing falsely, is not concerned with the formula you make, which is external in its nature, but rather has to do with the heart reality of not breaking our commitments. Jesus comes along and tells his disciples, hey, don't take any oaths, don't swear at all. Now, this isn't talking about don't take an oath in a legal context, like if you're in court and you have to take an oath on the Bible, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about in our interactions with one another, as we go about our lives, we don't need to uh, bring a solemn witness into it. Why? Because we should be people of integrity. We don't need to bring a solemn witness into it because when we say something, we should make good on it, is what Jesus is getting at. There's this temptation in the human heart to present ourselves as one thing, but have no intention of following through on our, on our inner, inner parts, right? We want to present to you a certain image, but inside, I don't actually live up to that same image. That's what Jesus is getting at here. This is similar, look at letter E, to Jesus' teaching on divorce that we looked at last week. The issue was not about lack, uh, uh, letting a lack of fidelity and follow through be permitted as long as you went through the proper external process. So similarly to what we saw last week, the Pharisees had begun to believe that you could divorce someone for any reason as long as you went through the proper legal procedures. And Jesus is saying, hey, that was never what it was intended to be about. That was not what I was doing when I made an allowance here. This is more severe than you imagine it. And in the same way, now he's highlighting this place where they're saying, as long as you jump through the right hoops or you say the right words, you don't actually have to be bound to it. So I can make these big lofty promises and never intend on following through on them because again, religiously, I had my fingers behind my back crossed. That's what Jesus is getting at here. So the purpose of oaths, made in God's name was always intended to restrict the tendency in us to lie and present ourselves as something we're not. Look at the top of page two. So Jesus invites his followers to live in a different manner. Now, I think this is interesting for us because I don't think a lot of us honestly walk around too often concerned about formulas and how we're making oaths to one another. So we're gonna to have to do a little bit of work to try to discern in our common context, what does this look like, right? Because Jesus is inviting us to watch something that is a tendency within the human heart that I think all of us actually struggle with. And we can see this by what he actually invites us to do, what he exhorts us to do. He exhorts us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. This is speaking of having integrity with our word and following through on our commitments. In other words, we're to be people who keep our promises and people of our word. So Jesus here is putting in front of us, there is this temptation that all of us have to present ourselves as one thing. And maybe it's better than we really are, and we know that. Maybe we wanna look a certain way in a group of people and we know we aren't actually that. And Jesus is putting his finger on that and saying, let how you talk to people, what you commit to, how you present yourself, let that line up with reality. Don't present yourself as this one thing and then internally you have no desire to walk in the same way. So how does this work in our lives. Look at letter H. When we don't follow through with our commitments, which happens more often than we probably want to admit, you know, when we exaggerate. Think about this. When you're telling a story and you want to round the number up as it's related to you, right? You want to make it bigger and better than it actually was. You wanna present yourself in a little bit of a better light than you actually were in the moment, right? We were in this argument and I said this thing and you had this glorious way of that. I was unmoved in that argument, but internally you were raging inside, right? Like how many people do that? Exaggerate what's true. When we do that, that's breaking our word. Right? We present ourselves as one thing, and we aren't that in reality. That is breaking our word. When we make ourselves out to be something we're not, when we do that, integrity requires that we acknowledge this to others. There is a spirit of grace that can abound when we fall short, but we have to be committed to confessing this and acknowledging it to those whom it affects. This can be applied all over the place, in marriages, in families, vocations, among friends, all of these places we can operate in this. Let me just give a couple examples. Hey, dad's in the room. When you make a commitment to be with your children and you cannot follow through on it or you do not follow through on it, what does it look like for you or what would it look like for you to take on this commandment and when you fall short of your commitment to not make excuses for it, not go, hey, that's just the way it was. I got busy, I'm, you, know, you can't put that on me. I'm not gonna bear that. If you actually led your family by repenting, by looking at your children and going, hey, daddy told you I would be here and I wasn't. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? What would be different in your home if you led with integrity that way? What would change? How would the climate of your home change? What would be different if you were a person of your word and your family knew that when you said something, it was as good as done, and when you didn't, you acknowledged it. You didn't just sweep it under the rug and let it go. Okay, here's a really silly one, but I actually want to say it being late. Being late. When you tell somebody you're going to be at a place at a time and you show up late, what have you done? Broke your commitment, right? Now, that doesn't have to be a huge pile of shame that's heaped on you, but what it does mean is are you the type of person that in that small area, in the smallest of the smallest areas that seem so insignificant and because we all do it, we just let it go, What if you began to go, hey, I said I would be here. I'm sorry. This is why I was late. I apologize. That's it. There's grace. There's all sorts of forgiveness there. But what if you began to look at your word and said, when I say something, I want my actions to back that up all across the board. There's not any areas where I don't. And when I don't, I acknowledge it. I bring it into the light. I call it what it is, and I receive grace there and then set myself to do that again. The essence of this commandment is that we're not to ultimately manipulate others by promoting ourselves in a false way. This is what is meant by hypocrisy in the teachings of Jesus. When we present ourselves as one thing, but do not have the internal reality or the internal commitment or the internal pursuit of that in our souls. Here's how you know, I'm just gonna give you this and we'll move on. I actually really just wanted to fly through this one. Here's how you know when you struggle with this. When you do break your commitment, do you fly to justifying yourself and making excuses, right? It's never your fault. I couldn't, I, I couldn't change that scenario. Or do you acknowledge it? Do you repent? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you say what I, what I desired here or what I committed to here, I didn't follow through on? And I acknowledge that and I repent for that. Will you forgive me? How do you act in those situations? That will tell you a lot about what's going on in your heart and how you are stepping into this invitation from Jesus. Okay, Roman numeral three. The fifth and sixth temptation are gonna go hand in hand as we, as we close this out. In the fifth temptation, Jesus invites us to resist a spirit of retaliation. And a spirit of defensiveness towards others that insult us or take advantage of us. So the images that Jesus uses here, right? He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And then he goes on to give these images about uh, turning the other cheek and giving your coat when they ask for your shirt or going a mile, right? Like any Christian is familiar with these images, we all know them, we're all really familiar with them. But oftentimes we don't understand the meaning of them, so we're left in this spot of how do we apply them? Let her see. Uh, there's been a lot of streams throughout the church's history that have used these verses to promote some type of Christian pacifism, and that's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not giving a comprehensive teaching about. not utilizing force in any situation in any way, like the state or uh, police or soldiers or political or legal or any of that. Jesus isn't trying to give a comprehensive teaching on pacifism. What Jesus is doing is attempting to get at the heart reality of what we do when we're dishonored, when we're insulted, when we're inconvenienced, when we find ourselves in situations where there's like a petty disagreement and we feel like we have to vindicate ourselves, establish our side of the story, when we have to rise up and take for ourselves in those situations, Jesus is attempting to highlight that reality. The basic thrust of this is that Jesus' followers are called to not participate in a spirit of vengeance, defensiveness, and retaliation in the face of being dishonored or taken advantage of. The command to take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, tooth for a tooth, 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 (laughs) was given to give legal parameters within civil courts. This wasn't about personal retaliation and vengeance, but it had been taken as a principle for people to justify retaliating in vengeance. This was given to courts to set up a standard for fair justice outside of personal relationship. Jesus understands that we don't have the wisdom to seek out vindication for ourselves. We lack the right spirit, meaning we want what's ours. We often lack love. We lack the right measure, meaning you're going to exact way more than you were wronged. You want the person to pay way more than what you received and the right process to do this ourselves. So let me just establish what these images are. They actually get to one central point. And from these, I think we can de- derive principles uh, that, that keep us from viewing them as unrealistic or utopian or something that can't be attained. So turning the other cheek, this image is not primarily or used to speak of suffering physical injury, like hitting or beating. This isn't Jesus saying, if you're being accosted, just stand there and do nothing. This is about being insulted, to be hit on the right cheek, by someone, presuming they are right-handed, right? The the common reality of a right-handed person, if you are struck on the right cheek, it means you're getting slapped backhanded. And that's an insult. In Jesus's context, this is just a measure of insult. It's not even seeking to physically harm this person. It's like spitting in their face, right? So this is bringing dishonor and shame to someone through a backhanded slap. It's intended to dishonor them, belittle them, more than attempting to injure them. In our present context, like I said, it'd be similar to somebody spitting in your face or dishonoring your name, right? Something they say to you, how they insult you, how they run your name through the mud, something like that. The second image that Jesus uses then is being sued for your shirt. This speaks of an opponent using... Inexorbitant uh, ex- legal means to extract small claims, right like this is petty. This is a person going through the legal process to take something that is hardly significant from you. The picture here is someone 's pettiness of you using legal measures to extract something from you. Here, Jesus is not telling his followers to never seek to protect their livelihood or ability to provide for or protect others, right? So if you're, if, if somebody is suing you for, for a massive amount to protect uh, yourself or others or things like that, or your business, Jesus is not saying don't participate in that process. This is about a personal petty injury that is coming. And Jesus is going, give him more than that. Like, actually walk a different way. Being forced to go a mile in Jesus's day, Roman soldiers had the legal authority to require a man to carry his gear for up to a mile. This was something that fostered deep-seated measures of spite, disdain, and hatred for the Romans among those that they oppressed. This is a type of inconvenience and humiliation that that requires time and energy, right? Just think about this. How long does it take to walk a mile? 20 minutes, add a a soldier's gear, you add maybe 10 minutes. So you're 30 minutes out, 30 minutes back. This is just like a humiliating inconvenience on your time. Jesus is going, when they do that, go another one. And we'll we'll find out why here in a second. Look at the top of page three. Generosity and borrowing. Here, Jesus is calling his disciples to walk with a generous spirit. Particularly in the face of those who are adversarial and disposed toward us in evil. He wants his people to walk with a free spirit that does not resent or become embittered toward those who trouble us. Now this is again, not Jesus teaching that anytime somebody walks up and asks you for something, you give it to him. In the context, this is uh, adversarial relationships. This is those people who are against you in an adversarial way. So look at letter G. The main thrust of Jesus' teaching here is to invite his disciples to resist the temptation to retaliate and take up their own cause with a spirit of defensiveness. Jesus understands that resentment, vindictiveness, and retaliation keep our hearts in bondage as we fight to bring vindication and justice to our own name. The reason Jesus tells you to do these things let yourself be wronged, essentially is what he's saying, is Jesus understands that when you are opposed, when you are dishonored, when someone insults you, when someone inconveniences you, when someone comes against you and asks you to, uh, and troubles you, your knee-jerk disposition is to fight for yourself, vindicate yourself, defend yourself, and Jesus understands that that posture in the human soul actually enslaves you. It keeps you in bondage because you now have taken on this posture where you have to defend yourself, clear your name, fight for your own, and you cannot bear that load, Jesus would tell you. And so he invites you in these places where you are insulted or wronged or inconvenienced rather than operate in a spirit of retaliation to get what is yours and make sure you exact the same from them. He wants you to operate in an opposite spirit, to not participate or take up the cause of vengeance in yourself. Look at Romans 12 here. Paul encourages the Romans to never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul later uh, in Corinthians encourages believers to walk with a posture of allowing themselves to be wronged. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And he goes on and he says, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Have you ever thought about that? When you're in a place where someone bothers you, insults you, dishonors you, uh, speaks something to you that whether they intended or not just gets you the wrong way. What is our knee-jerk reaction in that moment? Justify ourselves, vindicate ourselves, make sure they know the reality, make sure other people know the reality, right? We rarely keep it with just us and them. We want other people to know that the truth about what's really going on here Jesus invites us in these places, what would happen if you let yourself be wronged? What if you didn't take up vengeance for yourself? What if you didn't spend the time and energy and effort defending yourself? What would be different for you there? Peter encourages Christians to walk in a spirit of love that covers a multitude of wrongdoings. Above all, Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? since love covers a multitude of sins. In a sermon based on these verses, Martin Luther King Jr. argued, I think rightly here, that what Jesus is inviting us to is breaking the cycle of hatred and bitterness and opposition. He argued well that hate multiplies hate, right? Your soul stays in bondage if you in those moments Take up the cause for yourself in vengeance, in a spiral of violence. This invitation by Jesus to actively resist using our power, our strength, our gifts, our resources to vindicate ourselves and fight for our own rights, and at times, even our well being. This is a means through which we'll operate in greater, greater levels of meekness, mercy, peacemaking. Think about all the Beatitudes, right? All the values of the kingdom that Jesus puts out in front of us and says, this is what it means to live the whole life. How do we get there? When you're wronged, don't use your strength to vindicate yourself. How do you cultivate meekness? In the places where you could rightly stand up and use your gifts and your strength and your energy and your efforts to exact what is rightly yours or vindicate yourself or defend yourself, what if in those moments you used your strength to forgive? That cultivates meekness in our souls, peacemaking, mercy. So Jesus closes then with one final invitation. The final of the six temptations is an active call not to harbor hatred in our hearts, even toward our enemies. This goes beautifully hand in hand with where he's just been. It would be easy to believe that in Jesus's commandments, just like Jesus's hearers had done, that if we loved our neighbors, we could be free to hate our enemies, right? So Jesus goes, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Number one, nowhere in the Bible does it say hate your enemy. But it's an easy deduction, Right? If I'm called to love my neighbor, I can can hate those who are opposed to me, right? Like God loves justice. God loves righteousness. So I could hate them as well. And Jesus invites his disciples to something utterly scandalous here. He says, it's not enough for you just not to retaliate. It's not enough for you to just not take up your own cause and be indifferent towards them or be passive towards them. No, it's, I want you to love them. I want you to love those who are your enemies. Jesus declares that the people of his new covenant family, people who embody the greater righteousness of his kingdom, will not only love their neighbors, but will love even their enemies. It is remarkable to not retaliate and take matters into your own hands when faced with difficulty and hardship. That takes the grace of God, right? When you are wronged, when someone is opposing you, when someone's standing against you and you don't retaliate in defensiveness and vengeance, that's a miracle. How much more of a miracle is this? Jesus goes, I want your heart to be so free that you love your enemies. You love those who are against you. Jesus doesn't leave it at indifference by not reacting. Jesus invites his hearers to step toward our enemies through active expressions of love. Now, this is how he lays it out in Luke, and I wanna highlight these three realities. Look at Luke six there. Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Now, Jesus gives us the real tools right here. It's not just love them with some like sentimentality. Right, or have a sweet disposition for them. He gives us the boots on the ground practices to what it means to love your enemy here. He says, Do these things, and this is what I'm talking about. So the first thing he does is he says, Do good to them. Jesus invites his hearers to look for active and practical ways to do good for those who hate them. This means we use our time, our energy, and our resources to meet real needs and people who are opposing us when we come across them, when we see them. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, a little later than what we read. He says, if you see your enemy hungry, feed him. If you see him thirsty, give him a drink. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, the way out, The way out of that bondage in your soul, when you find yourselves at odds with somebody, when someone's coming against you, when someone is opposing you, the way that your heart is free there is to overcome that evil by doing good. Using your strength, your time, your energy, your resources to meet a need in someone who has opposed you, who is your enemy. Now, I want to just highlight one thing really fast. In the Bible, you could, rather than enemy, why don't you use the word adversary or opponent? Someone that is in an oppositional relationship to you. Because we often think of enemies as the people who are way out there, like who might run our name through the mud or something. Enemies often in the Bible, why do you think there's so much in the New Testament about not backbiting, not slandering, not uh, harming one another with our words and our, our tongues in the New Testament? Why do you think that exists so much? Because we actually will be some of the places where this gets expressed most not people outside hating us. That'll happen maybe at times. But internally, in the family of God, oftentimes we find ourselves in opposition to each other. We miss each other. We, we have these grievances and we need to be exhorted and reminded to walk in these ways. So again, don't just have in your mind some random person down the street. Think of the person that walked with you for years and then now you're at odds with them. Jesus says, I want you to behave a certain way towards them. Do good to them. That's the first call there. Look at the top of page four. The second is to bless them. This demonstrates that we're to speak words of blessing both to our enemies and about our enemies. Oftentimes we seek to use our words to garner support for our side or sympathy among people or to tear other people down that we're at odds with. Jesus invites us to behave in a different manner, to use our words, our tongues, how we speak about people in a manner of blessing, not in a manner of cursing. He says, bless them. We're to actively bless them as far as possible And the last thing he invites us to is to pray for them. The way we're invited to show active love for our enemies is to pray for those who oppose us. We are to stand before God on their behalf and ask that they receive his grace, his forgiveness, are enlightened to his truth, and that they would turn and be saved if they're not his followers. So Jesus earlier declared that one of the most potent ways this could be expressed or will be expressed among his disciples is through slander and reviling. If you go back to the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you when people do all sorts of evil things, they persecute you, they slander you, they revile you. This is one of the ways that this happens in the life of uh, a Christian that we are to watch for, to keep alert toward, and to learn to respond in an opposite spirit. Jesus wants us to respond this way because in doing so, enabled by his grace, we actually act like our Father who is in heaven. God is long-suffering toward those who hate him, those that accuse him, those who are his enemies. Although there will be a day when Jesus brings ultimate justice, he is patient and slow to anger towards people who malign his name, who hate him, who uh, curse him. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. What he's getting at is he's saying, every one of us deserved the moment we sinned against the holy God to no longer have life. The fact that the sun comes up today on both the just and the unjust the fact that the rain falls from heaven and allows life to be sustained and crops to be produced so people can keep eating the fact that god doesn't come in and lay low everybody the moment they sin demonstrates something about the heart of god that you are to embody by his grace Be like your father in heaven, he says, who is patient and long-suffering and even towards those who curse him and hate him and are his enemies, he demonstrates his mercy. Bless those who oppose you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you demonstrate what your father is like. You demonstrate the long-suffering nature of God himself. Look at letter G. God ultimately demonstrated his love toward his enemies by giving his son while we were his enemies. This marks the standard of love that we are to seek to represent to this world. Have you ever thought about that? When God tells us to love our enemies, what is the standard of loving your enemy? God demonstrates his love in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, while we hated him, while we were running headlong in a direction that was opposed to him and his ways, he sent his son to die for us that we might have life. Do you wanna know when Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, do good towards those who oppose you. What is the picture and the representation of that in the most potent way? It's the cross of Jesus. The place where God put on full display. This is what I'm like. This is what my love is like. This is my patience, my justice, my righteousness, my goodness, my forgiveness, my mercy put on display for all to see. That's what Jesus is inviting us to receive by faith and he's inviting us to be conformed into his image as we seek to walk in obedience to these ways. Amen. I'm going to close there. Would you all stand with me? I'm going to just pray for us quickly and then we'll, uh, we'll come to the table together. Father, we love you. We thank you and honor you for your word. God, this morning we ask that as we respond, would you come and move in our midst? Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. We invite your ministry among us. We ask that you would move with your power to convict, your power to comfort, your power to realign us in accordance to your word. Would you conform us to yourself, we ask? Lord, and as we come to the table this morning and remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I ask that we would be reminded yet afresh of the way that you demonstrate your love, even to your enemies. God, would you remind us that you are the Lord, the Lord God, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in mercy, God, as we come and receive uh, from the table this morning, would would you wash our hearts with that truth and empower us into greater measures of obedience as we seek to follow you? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Come and take and eat. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, drink from this. This is the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink from it. If you put your faith in Jesus this morning, if you look to him and him alone for your righteousness, for your salvation before God, I wanna invite you to come and take communion with us. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you take a piece of the bread, tear it off, dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle, in the balconies, and uh, gluten-free to my right, to your left. Yeah, servers, you can come on forward now. If you're in the room this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't put your faith in Jesus, we wanna ask that you not come take this meal with us. Uh, we don't wanna make you feel the pressure or um, feel like you have to go through some, some outward uh, ritual with us, this meal points to a reality. It points to a reality of putting your faith in the death of Jesus as your only salvation. And so if, that, if you don't believe that, if that's not uh, what you're clinging to this morning, just stay in your seat. Uh, if you need help in what it would look like to pray, we have cards in the seat backs in front of you have some language on there for you if you want to uh, pray before the Lord. So we're going to respond now through song. We're going to come to the table. And as we do every week, we have ministers in the, in the sanctuary that would love to pray with you, pray for you. Anything uh, that you're stirred in in your soul that you want to ask God to meet you in, if you need healing in your body, we'd love to stand uh, and pray with you. So we're going to respond in those ways. You can come when you're ready.